0: Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hanson, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Jesus was and is a genius. Have you ever thought of him that way? We know him as a friend, Lord, healer, teacher, of course, son of God, true God from true God. But genius? Einstein was a genius. Hawking was a genius. Men of science, men of modernity, men who created our world. Jesus? He's a religious figure, and we don't associate religion with genius, even when we confess with Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Well, Peter Williams wants you to consider the surprising genius of Jesus in his new book from Crossway. He shows readers what the Gospels reveal about the greatest teacher. He wants you to see the cleverness and wisdom of Jesus. Jesus. Williams is the principal of Tyndale House, Cambridge, and chair of the International Greek New Testament Project. He's also the author of an excellent little book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Which is in many ways similar to The Surprising Genius of Jesus. Now, I read this latest book from Peter just before my family embarked on a month long stay at Tyndale House, Cambridge last summer, and we just had the time of our lives. The library was helpful, no doubt, but the community was truly special. So I wanted to talk with Peter about the surprising genius of Jesus, as well as the mission of Tyndale House, Cambridge. So Peter, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. Great to be with you. It's a little sad to be seeing you here on video as opposed to next door over the (laughs) summer, but uh, it'll have to do across the pond. Um, Now, Peter, in this book, the the story of the two sons, of course, we better know it, many of us, is the parable of the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. And it deals with all kinds of themes, anger, freedom, love, resentment, shame. What's the key to discovering the genius of Jesus in this particular story?
1: Well, it's it's an incredibly powerful story, and it's Jesus' longest story, uh, which means that there's just the most in uh, based on time. It's only three minutes long, though. If you read that out loud in English, that's a typical sort of uh, reading length. So it really is very packed in. Uh, and I think, you know, you can admire different storytellers over the ages. Uh, sometimes they will tell a very long story like uh, Tolkien does. But the, the amazing thing with Jesus is to get so much into such a short time. Um, it's very emotionally intelligent as well as intellectually intelligent. Uh, it captures uh, every sort of person in terms of uh, the uh, family dynamics, in terms of the tendency to run away from authority uh, with the younger son, uh, in the tendency of the older brother to um, submit to authority but resent it. Um, And so it speaks in that way. And it works whether you know anything or if you're a top scribe of Jesus' day where it also has special messages uh, for those sort of people. So it's very, very well-crafted. Not a single word wasted. Was there ever a moment
0: where it just clicked with you, that genius of Jesus? Was there, is there a before and
1: after there or a realization that dawned on you over time? No, it's definitely a uh, thing over time. Uh, as you study more and more, you realize already just at the beginning, this is an amazing story. Uh, but as I've taught it over the years, I've seen more and more come to appreciate that there isn't a, a single wasted word uh, there, and that's uh, significant that there are emotionally powerful words and even omissions. So the fact that the younger brother three times calls the father father and the when the older brother addresses the father, he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you without the word father. So it's the cleverness not just of the word choice but of the words that are omitted Um, because that obviously shows you that whereas one brother is physically far away, he's actually emotionally closer than the one who's physically close. Um, And it's that sort of thing that's going on in the story throughout.
0: I learned the Book of Acts and the Pauline epistles in my graduate school from Don Carson, a a Cambridge alum, of course. And um, that was the emphasis in all of the verbal exams that we took there are no wasted words mm-hmm. in scripture um, but so many of them fly over our heads because we don't have the the background we don't have the understanding we don't we don't have the perception that certainly those audiences would have in the first century but but even the many things that would have flown over their heads as well in some ways but you talk a lot in the parable of the two sons about the Old Testament delusions mm-hmm. from Jesus. For example, you write that the first record of anger in the Bible comes from an older brother envious of the acceptance of his younger brother. Mm-hmm. You You point that out, and I can be reading the Bible for several decades and think, Oh, that seems so obvious. How did I how did I miss that? Give us a taste for some of these other Old Testament allusions that are everywhere from Jesus in this story.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think sometimes when you're dealing with this story, it's a bit like uh, you know uh, the the story of the Titanic. Everyone knows that it's gone down, and therefore all <laughs> the suspense is is gone. And and if you've heard the story once, you know that the father runs, embraces, and kisses the younger son, and that that's um, not a surprise anymore. So you think, okay, what's going on? Um, But there's lots in the story. Um, And yeah, one of the things is the way I would say Jesus echoes Genesis throughout uh, the story. So in Luke, it says it's addressed to tax collectors and sinners. You wouldn't expect people who have got a reputation for sin to know the Bible pretty well. Uh, But then it's also addressed to Pharisees who study the scripture and scribes whose very job it is to copy out the scriptures. And so Jesus tells a story which will work whether you know the Old Testament at all or not. Uh, but if you know it, it's got particular points. So there you've got the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, let's say the, the story begins, a man had two sons. What does that trigger in you if you're someone who knows the scriptures? We think, well, the first person who had two sons was Adam. Of course, he had some more later, but that that could be triggered. Adam's two sons, then you see the older son is envious about the younger brother, he's resentful, he murders him. Um, And you have this scene where God is talking to Cain in a merciful way. Um, And that's very much really like the way the father speaks to the older brother in this story. But of course, a man had two sons also triggers other stories. Uh, The most famous father to have two and only two sons is Isaac. And there you have the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau, the older brother, who's cheated out of his inheritance by the younger brother. And uh, as a result, the younger brother goes off into a far land, feeds uh, animals. And then uh, he, because his older brother's angry, he's trying to get away from him. And then he comes back eventually. And you're expecting him to get absolutely uh, splatted by his older brother. He's heard that he's got 400 armed men and it's coming towards him. And in the most surprising turn of events in the Old Testament narrative, actually, Esau runs, embraces, and kisses his younger son. And that's the only time in the Bible you get someone running, embracing, and kissing other than Jesus' story. So Jesus' story is uh, saying that the father's uh, welcoming of the younger son is really like that surprising welcome by Esau, Um, which is a bit of a hint if you're an Esau-type figure, an older brother who's been uh, working hard or whatever, uh, that actually... um, If bad old Esau could welcome his cheating brother, shouldn't you be prepared to accept tax collectors and prostitutes? Now, you think about it. If you're a Pharisee, you work hard, you pay your taxes, you pay your taxes to the Romans via the tax collectors. That's a bit of a painful thing to do, uh, uh, giving money to your overlords. And it's those awful tax collectors that are facilitating that and enriching themselves out of that. And the thought that they can just get access to God, as Jesus seems to be suggesting, is a bit of a problem for you. So all of that message is there.
0: Oh, and this is one reason why, Peter, I just, I love the work that you do, because this is what it's really, it's opening up this sense of, of genius, of all of the detail, of all of the illusions that you see, the intentionality, the unity of the story of redemption the similarities, but also the differences. But even the differences are very strategic. They're very deliberate in there, in the old unfolding plan of redemption. Now, one of the—you've already alluded to this. This is a clear biblical pattern. You mentioned Jacob and Esau, but we could have talked about other examples as well, that those who are first in line to inherit are not always the ones who inherit. Mm -hmm. Now, let's think about this when you're talking to non-Christians or anyone else who is— really less familiar with the Bible, including Christians.
1: How do you explain the significance of this pattern? What does it mean? Well, I mean, first, I'd want to encourage people to uh, take time to uh, study Jesus' words and see more in them over time. So there's just an ongoing um, depth. But you do see this thing uh, throughout Scripture that God um, lifts up the weak and he brings down the proud. And... That's uh, throughout uh, uh, scripture. I suppose you could say it. It uh, the very first older brother uh, in in the Bible doesn't seem uh, doesn't follow after God. Um, I'm a younger brother. Uh, of course, I, I love uh, the fact that younger brothers do a bit better. But 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 you know, it's not a simple thing. Of course, Jesus is an eldest brother as well. Um, so, uh, but there is this thing about uh, the people you would think are far off, God brings near. Those you would think would be uh spiritually close um actually aren't anything like as close a- and so that's a pattern that's a great encouragement uh, to any who feel what they've done is too bad god can't accept them no he'll accept you as you are you don't have to um you don't have to do things to earn uh, your way to god of course uh when that younger uh son comes back he has to give himself over to to his father uh, but it's not a question of earning uh, his way back into the family. And, and that's um, a very encouraging thing.
0: Another thing you write, Peter, is that, uh, quote, Jesus spoke for those with ears to hear and mm-hmm. taught in a way that the simple to grasp and the intelligent could miss. Mm-hmm. How does this fit into his his genius? Is there Is there something here that's peculiar or particular to Jesus, or is there something here that should be applied to the rest of our our own teaching?
1: Well, I think it's important for us to understand that God uh, speaks to reveal himself and also, in a way, to hide himself. Now, we've got to understand that God desires people to be saved. That's where his um, heart is. I think it's it's, uh, taught throughout scripture. God is a God who loves life, loves giving life, loves sharing life, and never um, enjoys, takes pleasure in, the death of the wicked. Okay, so that that, that you've got to understand that there's an asymmetry uh, in God's uh, intentions and heart, which is towards salvation. It's not about enjoying anyone uh, not being saved. Um, But at the same time, when he speaks, It's done in such a way that people should seek after him. And if they do not seek, they will stumble. And the clearest case of this you've got is at the cross, where um, you could stand underneath the cross and think, wow, this is very good evidence that Jesus is a loser, that the Romans are in charge. uh, He cannot be the Messiah. Or you get it with the incarnation. Well, he can't be God. He's just a little baby. Um, So that's the hiddenness of God at the same time, Um, A dying thief can look at the same evidence as the other dying thief and say, remember me when you're coming into your kingdom. I can see you may be being crucified by the Romans, but I can see you're about to become king or coming into a kingdom. You know, this is a, I mean, of course he's king before, but you're coming into his kingdom. This is remarkable. So it is that revealedness and that hiddenness. Now, sometimes, uh, in apologetics what that's the, the sort of talking about defending the faith people miss that idea uh, because they think that it's all just about god overwhelming people with evidence and god's evidence doesn't coerce um, god gives evidence in such a way that if people want to turn away they can and that's a a disturbing thing a challenging thing um that god's Uh, makes it so that if you want to walk away, you can, uh, and you will be able to find intellectual justification for doing so. And particularly if you're a clever person, you've got a lot of intellectual resources for constructing uh, the reasons why you shouldn't come. And the interesting thing then is, of course, um, Jesus is convicted uh, by the top academic body of his day, the Sanhedrin. Mm -hmm. That's who they are. So you know, someone involved in the academy recognizing uh, that there's a tendency for those of us who are involved in brain industry things often to to miss things uh, much more than others.
0: Yeah. So even though you have this book about Jesus as a genius, there in fact are many reasons why those who are endowed with those with that genius might be more likely to miss him. In some ways today?
1: Well, well I think there is a, a a problem not with knowledge in itself but knowledge right. combined with human the pride. Uh, pride. Yeah. So knowledge puffs right. up uh, and yeah. so God has all knowledge but there's something about us as humans that we often uh, find that knowledge distorts the way we think because we um, we begin to think that we know a lot <laughs> yeah. uh, and so then we're, we're becoming quite foolish.
0: No better example of the Pharisees, and no better example than of this story of that exact dynamic at play. Um, Peter, explain how the details of this this story in particular, but you could talk about other examples in your book, defend the claim of Jesus as the authentic source of this yeah. teaching.
1: So uh, there are various aspects uh, to this. Um, one is uh, the way. Uh, that uh, stories uh, begin uh, and end. Uh, so we, we can see at the end of uh, this story about the two sons, the father saying it was necessary to celebrate. Well, we can see other stories attributed to Jesus talking about what's necessary. Um, there's a build up as you have three stories going from a 100 sheep with one loss to uh, 10 coins with one loss to two sons. Um And we know that Jesus told the story of the lost sheep. That's uh, not just it. So uh, that's in Matthew as well as in Luke. It's something that's um, uh, traced there. So we can see some of the same features of the storytelling uh, that you have in in Luke. You can find over in Matthew uh, and you can find in Mark. So the idea that these things all come as a product of Um, Luke's creativity or the writer of Luke's Gospels creativity won't explain the patterns you have within the story. Uh, We can also say that whoever wrote the story or told the story has to be someone who knows rabbinic um, uh, thinking as well. Uh, The uh, story of the lost sheep um, parallels a rabbinic story of uh, Moses going after a lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin um, uh, parallels of rabbinic story where uh, losing a coin is like losing the law. And that's all the build up to uh, this story at the end of Luke 15. Then you go on to Luke 16 and uh, there are parallels between uh, the story of the lost sheep uh, of, of the uh, prodigal son and the story you have uh, of the. Um, unjust manager. So, what uh, and the unjust manager story has got clearly Palestinian measures in Palestinian uh, phrases, uh, like about the unrighteous mammon, uh, and and uh, that that they're not coming from a gentile author. But what you can also see is, whereas in one the younger son says, "How many of my hired servants?" In the other one, the um, unjust steward says how much do you owe? It's the same phrase. And you will find actually lots of linking phrases between that and even the following story, which is the story of the uh, temporarily rich man and Lazarus. Uh, uh, Again, you have uh, lots of uh, common phrases and ideas. I write about those in the book. So you really have to have the whole lot uh, coming from one source. And it can't be Luke because of the parallels we have. Uh, Going on in Matthew's Gospel. So, just to give you one last example of this, in uh, the story of the lost son, the prodigal son, uh, it says he longed to be filled with the food that the pigs ate. Um, And then in the story of the formerly rich man and Lazarus, it says that uh, uh, Lazarus, sorry, the rich, the one who was rich when he was in Hades, longed. Sorry, no, Lazarus longed to be filled with the food um, that fell from the rich man's table, but along came the dogs. So what you got is the phrase long to be filled, followed by, in one case, pigs, in another case, dogs. That's in Luke's gospel, only in Luke's gospel. Go back over to Matthew's gospel and you can see Jesus making a parallel of uh, pigs and dogs when he says, don't uh, cast your pearls before swine, don't give what's precious to the dogs. And so it's the same mindset that you can find. And I trace lots and lots of these uh, cases, even though it's a short book, Uh, where you can actually see it's really hard to make a case that the gospel writer makes this up and it doesn't go back to Jesus. Then you have the fact that it's a story which has coherence and brilliance and you don't get that cut by committee. So you're really forced into the position that the whole lot, like a poem, goes back to one author. It's not composite. Um, It's got the same technique of composition throughout it. Therefore, this uh, most obviously goes back to the most famous palestinian jewish teacher namely jesus
0: absolutely now that's such a good overview peter and take that and let's address bible study teachers small group leaders who are listening or watching this preachers how should they work to be able to draw out or uncover the genius of jesus um, they can do that in part by what you're talking about there, drawing the connections Old Testament, New Testament, intercanonically, across the Gospels. But What does that look like? How do we draw that out in application?
1: Well, I think part of it is to expect uh, there to be depth in what Jesus yeah. says. So I think often um, we're familiar with what Jesus says, but we haven't really expected there to be depth. So people are often underwhelmed by Jesus's shortest story, which says, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman taking uh, leaven and putting it in three seers of fine flour until it's uh, it's all um, uh, risen. And you think, well, there's nothing there at all, is there? Except that there's only one other place in the Bible that you get three seers of, of flour. And that is uh, when Abraham goes to Sarah and says, quick, get three seers of flour uh, and uh, and and bake uh, food for the three guests who are coming to visit Abraham. And of course, they're coming with a message that this barren old couple are going to have a child. And in fact, that's part of a package where um, their children are going to be innumerable, like the stars and like the sand. So what's Jesus saying in that story, incredibly short parable, is the kingdom of heaven is that growing thing. And it just starts with this small unassuming meal uh, that Sarah makes uh, and as Abraham and Sarah show hospitality to people, they don't even know how special they are initially. Uh, They don't know this is God and two angels. They just think they're visitors. And as they start that underwhelming thing, it just grows and grows and grows. Um, And there's such a lot you could draw into that. You could do a whole sermon on that. Um, But I think people are often um, not expecting there to be depth. Uh, in Jesus' stories. And so I think you need to expect there to be depth and then study the Old Testament and and look at how it's drawn on time and time again in Jesus' stories.
0: I love that. It, for the last few questions, Peter, I'd like to talk about Tyndale House, Cambridge. Mm-hmm. So mentioned there that we got to spend a month there over the summer with you guys. And um, just give the folks who are watching and listening here a feel for the for the environment at Tyndale House.
1: Yeah, and I'd love you also to uh, share some of your own thoughts from your visit. um, What what I'd say is we're aiming to be a place which raises up uh, servant-hearted Bible scholars who really want to give their gifts uh, for the global church. So people from around the world do come and uh, people can be in our... Um, library for a month or or they could be there for three years people come for different lengths of time some people are doing degrees while they're doing a PhD they might be writing a book Um, but what it means is that it's an incredible place for networking because we have 50 or so people and quite a lot of them living there because we have accommodation too and so you build a a global community so when you come let's say for a month you're likely to meet people from Uh, lots of other continents and develop some connections and friendships which actually last and the longer you are there the more of those you're going to have and so it's um, I think it's the the biggest crossroads we have within the evangelical church for uh, yeah evangelical biblical scholars uh, spending time together and also looking to do so in a context where we're not puffed up uh, by what we know, because you know that the other people you're having coffee with at eleven o'clock in the morning uh, are just as bright as we are. They've all everyone, you know, everyone's got achievements. I mean, people at different levels, um, uh, different uh, ages and stages. Um, but we shouldn't be bragging about what we we can do. And if we we do, hopefully someone will bring us down a peg or two pretty quickly. Um, uh, because yes, there's lots of other people in the room who've written books or are going to write books and and have significant ministries, and so uh that's where um hopefully we then can get down to thinking how we can serve god together uh, and of course in addition to um serving people who come to the library and community we're actually trying to be quite proactive bringing people in we had uh, 38 people from brazil uh, visit re- recently we're trying to uh serve um uh, people round 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 the world um and uh that's we've also got research projects that we put on produced uh our own uh greek new testament here yes. um and uh that's that we're um working on trying to give the church the best possible um uh text of the new testament but also looking at doing research on the history of the old testament and things like that
0: yeah i'll, I'll give people i'll give people a story so uh, you're exact I mean, I. Anytime I was anywhere around, I, I had to be there at 11 a.m. to be able to talk with people and to learn from people and just find out who else was there and get to know them. So I'm in the library. I hear the gong, you know. So go out there to, to share. And um, the project that I was working on. Hopefully, this will see the light of day sometime in the next year or so. Um, was really about the. About the Old Testament, well, they're just the Jewish practice of talking back to God. So the problem is that God seems silent, but there's an entire world of the Old Testament into the New Testament of talking, of just questioning God, of where are you, demanding answers from him, demanding, you know, calling him to account. And, of course, one of the best examples of this is Job, but, you know, you you start off at the very beginning, and the first question that God asks us is, where are you? And it seems like ever since then, we've been asking him, where are you? And there comes this moment. And of course, I was going to come we'll talk with Job and and I'm, I'm talking to, I can't remember if it was Caleb or Tony or who it was I was talking to. And they said, have you, have you talked to such and such, you know, she's memorized the entire book of Job in Hebrew. <laughs> like, I bet yeah. she'll have some insights. And Sure enough, <laughs> she had some some great insights that I thought, "Wow, thanks, Ellie <laughs> That was really yeah. that was really insightful um but you know you're you're exactly right it's it's the kind of place that you'll really thrive if you're i mean if you're impressed with yourself, it's not a great place to be <laughs> because you'll be knocked down pretty quickly because you're not that impressive. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're used to always teaching other people and always being the expert, but if you're the kind of person who loves to learn from others who are even more gifted by God, but are using it in really beautiful ways to build up the church, um, it's really special. So that was, that's, that's one of my lasting, lasting memories there. Um, what does – you mentioned a bit about the, the Hebrew, what you're working on with the Hebrew Bible, and what are some other upcoming projects that excite you about Tyndale House, Cambridge?
1: Well, I mean, we get speakers on the road. We produce a uh, magazine, uh, the Ink magazine, which uh, we can send people electronically, as, uh, and we also have a journal coming out. So those are all sort of ongoing uh, things, and I think uh, in future stages, we're looking um, to – generate a lot more knowledge about exactly how uh, scribes make mistakes. Um, I think that will give even more precision and confidence about the text of the the Bible. Uh, So we're looking uh, to do that. And we're also looking at the way names uh, change over time, which will be um, uh, great fun. We don't uh, looking at that uh, at the Bible in relation to surrounding cultures. And so, we expect to have some exciting things to say in about three to four years time. Uh, so, you know, research is, <laughs> is, is, long. Yeah. Um, people are often wanting give it, give us, you know, the stuff now. Uh, and we're saying, actually, we're trying to take uh, a long-term view of this, not shoot from the hip, uh, but do genuine research where you don't know everything you're going to find out at the end. It's a bit like prospecting for oil. Uh, you could know that there's oil in this general area, but you don't know which ones are going to, um, yield it. And I think that's where, when we're looking in ideas, you don't know which one's going to prove the most
0: fruitful. You mean that you don't know when you're looking at an ancient manuscript and it turns out it's the first map of the stars?
1: <laughs> well, there was that. Yeah. I mean, I had, you I had a, tell, a, tell us that story. A, Peter. A very fun uh, story last year, 2022. Um, yeah. Get, getting research featured in the, the um, journal Nature, Uh, Because, yes, I was during lockdown, I was looking at a manuscript uh, which two layers of writing and uh, saw underneath that I actually had the uh, first coordinates of um, stars in the sky. And this turned out to be the long lost um, catalogue of the the greatest astronomer of the ancient world, namely Hipparchus. And lots of people have been looking for this for uh, centuries. And yes, it it turned up on my screen. So uh, that, that was very nice. And it's actually owned by the Museum of the Bible. Uh, so they bought it, not knowing what was uh, underneath, oh, and it's wow. very nice to sort of turn that up. So that's all, all uh, uh, a nice story. Yes, research—you never know what you're going to find. <laughs> Such a
0: lovely, understated British way of explaining that story, <laughs> Peter. I appreciate that.
1: Um, how? <laughs> how can? Well, by the way, how long did you guys work on the Greek New Testament? Uh, so first time round, ten years uh, to get the mm-hmm. first edition. I'm thinking, uh, in terms of uh, work, we're projecting. Maybe thirty years of of, of work uh, before we've solved everything. Um, so, no, I mean I think there there are new points right now with the massive data we have, um, more and more manuscripts um, which are digitised and so on, where we can start um, actually quantifying the relative proportions of mistakes that a scribe might make, uh, which will make a difference in terms of being able more um, to say it's more probable that this came from that. Uh, it, I think up to now, it's been a bit of armchair um, uh, work. And, and I think uh, that there's a lot that can be done over the next 10 or 15 years using really bright people, maybe some AI, um, yeah. and you know, uh, do, just trying to do the uh, um, the best job we can with the amazing mass of data that's flowing in right now.
0: Yeah. Uh, Peter, how can someone support Tyndale House, Cambridge? Can they just show up at the red, famous red door and say hello? Can they study well, there, they yeah, live there,
1: use the library? How does this work? Yeah, uh, yeah, we'd love people to uh, uh, come and visit, and uh, there are ways that yeah people can uh, get involved if they uh, have have got a scholarly bent, and uh, for others, I mean, there are there are really four ways we look for. Uh, support. We're looking for financial support, and people can support through our 501c3, the American Friends of Tinder House. We're looking for prayer support. We really want people to pray uh, that we would prosper and serve God. And then sometimes there are opportunities to volunteer. Uh, that they're you know uh, rare opportunities, but there are some. Uh, We've got a board in the US, a board in the UK, and there are things to be involved in. And then there's advocacy, which is uh, I think a really key thing. That is, we're not well known, Um, and so for people who are on social media, just to um, amplify things that we put out and spread the word about uh, tin the house is something we'd really like. So any of those ways uh, are ways that people can be involved.
0: Maybe it's too much British understatement, Peter. Maybe
1: it just uh,
0: really no. That's that's what I was hoping to do in part with this uh, with this podcast. I I've got another another memory, of course, of our first night. In Cambridge uh, you'll you'll recall this I'm sure but um, my kids have you know they've come transatlantic they've driven up from London and I've said we're not gonna just go to sleep you know we're gonna stay up the whole time and so we we stumble out we run into you and we're immediately walking at Peter Williams Cambridge pace with (laughs) my uh, with my five-year-old daughter who insists that she must be carried by me because she can't keep up and all sort of stuff. So, not only am I getting a wonderful tour of Cambridge, but I have wonderful memories with my kids. My son was able to keep up, but my daughters, you guys were kind to put up with her incessant um, difficulties. But in fairness, she kept saying, I have little legs. (laughs) It's true. She's got little legs. Well, Well, how did it
1: carry? Yeah,
0: that's true. Um, well, goodness. Well, Peter, it's been, it's been a delight to be able to talk with you about the surprising Likewise, genius of, of Jesus. Uh, Peter Williams, my guest on Gospel Bound this week, is the principal of Tyndale House, Cambridge. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.